My name is Adam Preston and welcome to Trafalgar Squared, a new podcast on the subject of naval warfare in the Georgian era, covering the French Revolutionary and the Napoleonic Wars. This is a huge and rich subject, and as I think it gives me an excuse to draw on anything in maritime history that catches my eye, it's likely to get huger and richer. I know there are many thousands of people who are going to find things to love in this podcast, and I look forward to inviting experts to come on and chat and do guest podcasts, etc., etc. Now, in this first episode, I am not going to try and sum up this vast subject, but instead tell one great story. The story of how the first news of the Battle of Trafalgar travelled from the battle site off the west coast of southern Spain to the old Admiralty boardroom in London what has become known as the story of the Trafalgar Way. I love this story for three reasons. Firstly, it brings vividly to life just how things were done at the very beginning of the 19th century, telling us, for example, about communication by land and sea, and it throws into stark relief just how far communications technology has come since then. Secondly, it's a wonderful demonstration of the intense zeal for the service practiced by British naval officers of the day, and the healthy and often ruthless competition between them. And finally, it's just a great seafaring and landfaring yarn, made all the more intense by the monumental, world-altering importance of the message that was carried. So at the Battle of Trafalgar, sometime after 1pm, a French sharpshooter up in the mizzen top of the Redoutable, about 45 feet above the quarterdeck of HMS Victory, fired a musket ball. This lead musket ball penetrated the left epaulette and shoulder of Admiral Nelson, continued down into his chest, severing the pulmonary artery, and lodged finally in the left side of his spine. He took over three hours to die. Nelson had commanded a fleet of 27 ships of the line against the combined Franco-Spanish fleet of 33. It was a decisive British victory over a formidable enemy, and it was the culmination of many decades of intense rivalry, between the British and French navies for control of the world's oceans. In more recent years, this rivalry had reached a peak of intensity with Napoleon's highly advanced preparations for an invasion of England. At its peak, Napoleon had an army of 200,000 men, sometimes known as l'armée d'Angleterre, gathered at camps in northern France and a massive flotilla of invasion barges built and ready in channel ports, including in the Netherlands, which was then under French control, but particularly at Boulogne. So certain was Napoleon of success that he had a medal struck and a triumphal column erected at Boulogne, both celebrating the success of the invasion before it had happened. Napoleon's view was best expressed when he said, Let us be masters of the channel for six hours, and we are masters of the world. The preparations at Boulogne could actually be seen from the south coast of England, and the continual year-on-year mounting anxiety of the threatened invasion took its toll on the British population. There were countless invasion scares, terrifying rumours of infernal invasion machines, some of them airborne, and uncountable nightmares experienced by children expecting to be eaten by Napoleon himself. Needless to say, Napoleon never did gain mastery of the Channel, thanks to the British Navy, and Trafalgar made it absolutely clear that there would be no second 1066, no second Battle of Hastings, no second Norman Conquest. 
Trafalgar substantially altered the course of world history, and at the moment of Nelson's death, command of the fleet passed to Admiral Cuthbert Collingwood, who was now faced with the greatest challenge of his long career. In the battle, Collingwood, in his flagship the Royal Sovereign, with its brand new copper bottom sheathing, had led the southerly of the two British lines and had been the first into battle. The Royal Sovereign had some of the fastest gun crews in the battle and she delivered shattering blows to the Spanish Santa Ana, but being initially unsupported, she had then been hemmed in by several enemy vessels. The punishing fire left Collingwood's flagship without so much as a suitable mast from which to fly signals. Collingwood himself was hit by flying debris and suffered a bad leg wound. On being told of the death of Nelson, like many a hardened seaman in the fleet, he broke down into tears. The Battle of Trafalgar was fought in sunshine and a light breeze, but also an ominous, heavy swell. As he lay dying, Nelson repeatedly urged that the fleet should anchor. He knew a storm was coming. He was absolutely right, and sure enough, the following day a gale came on from the southwest, accompanied by heavy rain. This storm was to rage for four days. It was so severe that when it hit Plymouth on the southwest coast of England, the local papers described it as a hurricane and reported that a sentry in the dockyards drowned when he was blown into the Tamar. The effect of this violent weather on the two fleets of damaged ships, many already taking on water and literally groaning with wounded, was like some lost chapter of Dante's Inferno. For example, the crew of the French ship Fougueux had numbered 680 at the start of the battle. After she was captured at around midnight, she broke adrift and despite concerted efforts to save her by the crew of the British ship Phoebe, she broke up on shore, losing 546 men all told. Her prize crew from the British Temeraire were also killed. British crews fought like hell to save the lives of their erstwhile enemies. The weather was too wild to draw boats alongside the massive captured Spanish ship Santissima Trinidad, and rescue boats had to lie under her stern while men were lowered on ropes, hundreds of them wounded, many missing arms and legs. Only those so seriously wounded that to move them meant certain death were left behind. The ship sank soon afterwards. More men lost their lives in the storm that followed Trafalgar than died in the battle, and of the 18 ships captured by the British, only four made it back to Spithead as prizes. The rest were either sunk or broken up on shore. Some were cut loose when a small fleet came out of Cadiz on the 23rd of October. Mistaking this for a new attack, Collingwood ordered his beleaguered fleet to clear for action. Such was the chaos that it was not until October the 26th that Collingwood was able to turn his thoughts to delivering news of victory and Nelson's death to the Admiralty in London, and thus to the world. He cast about for a suitable ship to carry his dispatches. Just before battle, a midshipman in the Euryalus had spotted the 73-foot topsail schooner Pickle, with its little decks cleared and gun ports open. Later he recalled, How well I remember the ports of our great ship hauled up, and the guns run out, and as from the sublime to the ridiculous is but a step, the Pickle's schooner, close to our ship, with her boarding nets up, her tompions out, and her four guns about as large and formidable as two pairs of Wellington boots. The little schooner carried four twelve-pounder carronades, and was as ready for the fight as any of the great seventy-four-gun ships in the British fleet. In command 
was a recently married lieutenant, John Richards Lapenotier. His French-sounding name, which the British press never spelled correctly in his lifetime, the result of Huguenot ancestors, who had come over in the train of William of Orange. From a military family, he was as patriotic and full of zeal for the service as any man in the British Navy, and he had already had scrapes and adventures enough to fill volumes. But he had failed to get noticed, lacked powerful interest, and there was nothing to suggest that his fate was not to be stuck as lieutenant for the rest of his career. The two-masted pickle had two booms, allowing the foresail and mainsail to be angled to take maximum advantage of the wind. With her dead drop in the hull to stop her going sideways, she could sail far closer to the wind than her round-bottomed, square-rigged rivals. She was fast, but she was not on the whole a happy ship. The problem was that she'd been built for tropical waters. Her fine lines allowed a lot of water over the rail. What is more, she offered only four foot six inches of headroom below decks. One crew member wrote that he was discontented and very wet in the pickle. In just one month, August 1802, La Penotier lost ten men to desertion. Another seven deserted in October. Her full complement was just 35. Her exasperated commander eventually secured a detachment of marines, chiefly to keep his crew on board. Before Trafalgar, Pickle and La Penotier had their share of adventures. She suffered storm damage and helped rescue the crew of the 74-gun Magnificent after she was wrecked while blockading Brest. She saw action, surviving a hair-raising attack by several Spanish gunboats, during which La Penotier was described as conducting himself with great spirit and propriety. Above all, Pickle was one of the busy dog's bodies of the fleet, chiefly engaged in carrying dispatches. During the Battle of Trafalgar, Pickle could initially do little more than hover at the periphery. But when the French 74-gun Achille caught fire and her French crew began leaping into the water, she crossed the whole battleground from north to south, and Lapinotier sent in his cutter and his jolly boat to pull survivors from the water. It was hazardous work. The French guns fired off randomly as the flames engulfed them. Pickle's muster list shows that 160 prisoners were taken, meaning that the little ship must have been completely inundated. Amongst those rescued was a 25-year-old Frenchwoman, wife of one of the Achilles' main top men, found naked and clinging to wreckage. The adventures of Jeannette, as she has become known, were recorded by Captain Robert Mawson of Revenge, who got the story from the crew of Pickle. When the Achilles was burning, she got out of the gunroom port and sat on the rudder chains. Then some melted lead ran down upon her and forced her to strip and leap off. She swam to a spa where several men were, but one of them bit and kicked her until she was obliged to quit and get to another, which supported her until she was taken up by the pickle. Janet was transferred to Mawson's ship, where he then claimed, I ordered her two passers' shirts to make a petticoat, and most of the officers found something to clothe her. The prisoners attempted to take control of Pickle during the night, planning to overcome the crew and take the ship into Cadiz, but somehow the attempt was quashed. At midnight, Lepinotier was rowed across to Victory, where Nelson lay dead. He stayed two hours and left his surgeon, Simon Britton, to treat the wounded. The next day, Pickle was busy transferring prisoners amongst the British fleet. By the afternoon, the wind had settled into a westerly gale. Pickle was in continual service, ferrying prisoners even as the storm worsened on the 25th of October. 
Then at dawn on the 26th, La Penotière was summoned on board Euryalus, and by 10am he was being handed the greatest opportunity of his career. Being tasked with delivering momentous news of victory is a great honour. It often leads to promotion, places your name in the history books, and comes with a rich purse. It is likely that Captain Blackwood would have been selected to take the news to London in his frigate Euryalus, but Collingwood's flagship had been reduced almost to a hulk, and the Euryalus was now the commander's flagship. Collingwood was forced to choose Pickle, writing to William Marsden, the first secretary at the Admiralty, that he had no means of speedier or safer conveyance with me at present. His orders to La Penotier stated, I trust you are fully aware of the great importance of those dispatches being forwarded as soon as is possible. He went on, I rely on your using every exertion that a moment's time may not be lost in their delivery. At noon on the 26th of October, Pickle made sail for England. Ahead lay a journey of over a thousand miles. The crew would have been aware that they carried the first news of victory. Exhaustion and perhaps nerves began to tell. Off Cape St Mary, the leadsman lost his grip, and for the second time in two days, a deep sea lead and ninety fathoms of line were lost to the deep. Then at 10am on the 28th of October, the sails of a British sloop, HMS Nautilus, commanded by Captain Sykes, were sighted off Cape St Vincent. Here, Sykes had been tasked by Nelson himself with sending British ships south to join the fleet at Cadiz, and to warn of any enemy vessels heading in the same direction. La Penotier had encountered Sykes and the Nautilus before the battle on the 28th of September, and he had come on board to receive his orders. Now the tables were turned. So important were the dispatches in Lieutenant La Penotier's keeping, that they conferred on him a superior status to that of Commander Sykes, and he ordered Sykes to come on board Pickle. It is not known what was said between the two men. Possibly, Sykes argued that Nautilus was a more suitable ship for delivering news of Trafalgar. We know Sykes was given a verbal account of the victory, and he agreed to deliver the news to the ambassador at Lisbon. Maybe Sykes was stung by the humiliation of taking orders from a lieutenant. Maybe he really did believe he was doing the right thing, but at some point he made the decision to race La Penotier to England. To cover himself, he wrote to the Admiralty, I have ventured to proceed solely activated by a zeal for the service, and in hopes to meet your wishes on the occasion, in becoming a security for the information of the pickle, should any accident befall her. In thus acting, sir, I much wish to deserve your commendation. Sykes made some efforts to take his own written account of the action into Lisbon. On the 29th of October, he stood off the mouth of the Tagus. He fired guns, calling for a pilot, and eventually stopped a Portuguese boat and passed his written account of the battle across to her. This document was never heard of again. By 9.30am, he was making all possible sail for England. Later that day, the crew of Pickles sighted the square-rigged Nautilus off Burling Island and realised that they were now in a race. With a following wind, Sykes' Nautilus overtook them. At dawn on Thursday the 31st of October, things must have looked utterly bleak for La Penotier as they passed the Costa de Morta, or Coast of Death. The wind had increased to a gale force. The ship was straining under the pressure, and they were now so behind that their rival Nautilus was almost certain to snatch all the glory and rewards of bearing the first news of victory to England. Then a huge wave swept over the ship, tearing away the jib boom and the spritsail yard. 
the forepeak was practically underwater, but it quickly became clear that the pump was blocked. They started to bail by hand, forming a human chain with buckets. All day they fought to save the pickle and their own lives. At 5pm, La Penotier made the painful decision to jetsam his 12-pound carronades, complete with their gun carriages, to reduce weight. This desperate measure won them precious time, but it wasn't until the 2nd of November that conditions calmed, and when they did, the wind fell away completely. After days of struggling in wild storms, the shattered crew were now ordered to work the enormous sweeps. For five hours they heaved away. On the 1st of November, Sykes in the Nautilus had encountered a squadron of French warships and had shadowed them for three hours, taking him off course. This had closed the gap between the Nautilus and the Pickle. On the 4th of November at 2am, Pickle sighted the lizard lights and soon the Manacles rocks were visible. La Pinotia could have struggled on to Plymouth, but he had good reasons for now heading to Falmouth, where his old friend John Bowen was naval commissioner. Collingwood's orders had stated, On your arrival at Plymouth, you are immediately to forward the accompanying dispatches to the Secretary of the Admiralty by taking them yourself, express to him, or, if the quarantine laws prevent it, by sending them the moment of your arrival to Vice Admiral Young for the same purpose. At Plymouth, Lapagnotier could easily have found himself languishing in quarantine, while someone else raced to London and glory. Instead, at 9.45am, Pickle anchored south of Pendennis Castle, and La Penotier was rowed ashore at Falmouth with his precious dispatches. By around 10.30am, La Penotier was striding up Falmouth's Fish Strand Quay. He now faced a land journey of some 300 miles, a journey which in those times could take up to three weeks, with many of the roads, particularly in the western part, little more than drovers' tracks. It might be assumed that La Penotier would now locate a sturdy steed and gallop gallantly to London. In reality, of course, horses can be ruined if they are galloped over long distances. The coaching system that had developed in England meant that there were inns every 10 to 15 miles, where a ticket on a stagecoach could be purchased, or, if you were moneyed, a post-chaise express could be hired. In some of the larger inns near London, there could be as many as 300 horses stabled for the purpose of hiring out to travellers. Most likely it was at the Royal Hotel in Falmouth that La Penotier now engaged the first post-chaise carriage. These light carriages, often painted a distinct canary yellow, were pulled by two or four horses, with a postboy or postillion seated not on the carriage itself, but on the lead horse. Postillions were small, wiry men, often in their fifties or even sixties. Many were ex-jockeys. They were highly skilled at both controlling the horses and getting the most speed out of them. For the next 37 hours, Le Penotier would travel non-stop to London, changing horses and sometimes carriages 21 times. His receipt for the journey has survived. The total was £46, 19 shillings and a penny, or approximately half a year's salary for a lieutenant. First stop was Truro, a trip which cost a pound, two shillings and sixpence, then on to the Blue Anchor at Fradon, then Bodmin, then Launceston and Oakhampton, the prices leap up, probably because by now it was the middle of the night, with stages costing over £3. Sykes, who had docked ahead of him at Plymouth, was still very much in the race. He too grabbed a post-chaise, and at Exeter he joined the same road as La Penotier. A Captain Robert Tomlinson witnessed the two carriages chasing each other through Dorchester, 
and wrote about it to his brother. On Tuesday, the 5th of November, about noon, two officers of the Navy came through this town, following each other at about an hour's space of time, in two post-chaises and four horses to each, from the westward. The first reported that he brought good news of great importance, and the second that his dispatches contained the best and most capital news that the nation ever experienced. Despite everything they had been through, only an hour now separated Sykes and La Penotier, and we do not know who was ahead at this point. The date of the second day of La Penotier's land journey indicates he may have had another problem. The 5th of November is, of course, Guy Fawkes' night, and this was 1805, so it was the bicentenary of the gunpowder plot to blow up Parliament. As he raced through Basingstoke, Bagshot and Staines, it is likely that La Penotier would have begun to pass the alarming sight of massive bonfires, and who knows how many of the newly imported fireworks from China startled the horses. There is a tradition that La Penotier got lost in a heavy smog in Hounslow. The smoke from a thousand celebratory fires cannot have helped. To add drama to the story, we can surmise that Sykes got lost too, and perhaps lost his head, and lost his lead, with La Penotier slipping ahead as Sykes yelled and cursed at the pea-super, engulfing him in some gloomy cul-de-sac in Hounslow. What we do know is that it was La Penotier who reached the Admiralty first, drawing up at 1am on the 6th of November, just minutes before Sykes. La Penotier burst into the Admiralty boardroom, where he found William Marsden, the first secretary, working by candlelight. Sir, we have gained a great victory, he announced, but we have lost Lord Nelson. For his troubles, La Penotier was promoted to commander, and he was given the princely sum of £500, enough to buy himself a fine house. He was also written into the history books. He never made much of his brush with immortality. He had further adventures and some nasty wounds, at one point having most of his face burnt off when a gun exploded beside him during a bombardment of Copenhagen. He made post-captain in 1811, but was never given another ship to command, and spent the rest of the war, as the phrase of those times put it, on the beach. He died peacefully at home in Menheniot in Cornwall in 1834, where he's buried next to his second wife. The Trafalgar Way is now an official national heritage route, and you can find out more about this story and the activities of the Trafalgar Way at www.thetrafalgarway.org. The organisation encourages people to travel along the way, from point to point, discovering the towns and villages, and generating their own stories and generally adding to the legacy of La Penotier's journey. The Trafalgar Way also serves to remind us of the importance of the Royal Navy in our nation's story, and it takes that story inland. In 2005, the 1805 Club became the official custodians of the Trafalgar Way. In August and September of that year, plaques were unveiled at many of the surviving coaching inns and locations where La Panottier changed horses. These memorial plaques can be seen today all along the route, starting at Fish Strand Quay in Falmouth and ending outside 26 Whitehall, where the old Admiralty boardroom is preserved, just as it was when Lieutenant La Panottier delivered the news of Trafalgar. So I'd like to give a special thanks to Peter Hall, undoubtedly the world's principal expert on HMS Pickle, whose excellent book, HMS Pickle, The Swiftest Ship in Nelson's Trafalgar Fleet, I have made liberal use of. I also recommend Roy Atkins' book, Nelson's Trafalgar, The Battle That Changed the World, 
which has startling descriptions of the storm that followed the battle. So, thank you for listening to the very first episode of Trafalgar Squared. In the next episode, I'm going to be doing a summary of Admiral Nelson's great qualities as a fighting commander as displayed in his greatest battles. Called What Makes Nelson Special, this episode first played on the History of England podcast. I also talk about a fully scripted epic TV series that is planned about the life of Nelson, which you can find out more about at www.trafalgar.tv. Over a thousand people from all over the world have already signed up to say that they would love to see this series, which is a great start. So, until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>